Welcome back to our Eagle Perspective podcast. I'm here for part two of my conversation with Sissy Goff and David Thomas. Thank you again for staying so long and giving so much of your time. Was the pink shirts coordinated <laughs> intentionally? Or because no. so this was just random chance. Just random chance. Isn't that funny? Okay. Pretty similar we cracked color. up when we walked out and made this discovery. Because right, well, that's good because I would feel a little bit excluded otherwise. We like you know, yes. I mean, this is second time now. Say, right. Come on. We're close enough that we should have called you to say yeah. Pink. That's yeah. right. So, well, in part one we talked about a lot of things. In part two, I think we're going to focus largely on anxiety, which okay. was a big part of our conversation last year as well. But of course, even in the year since. We're still seeing a lot of that. Seeing um, even more of it. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I think parents in particular are struggling with tools. What do we do for our kids who have this? And then maybe secondarily or not so secondarily, what do we do to not become anxious ourselves when we have anxious kids about our kids' anxiety, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I know you guys have shared a number of things, but maybe what are some tips that that each of you would share for parents, some practical things they can do when they have kids that are anxious? I think a first thing worth noting is it's going to look different. It's going to look different depending on the temperament of your child, and it's going to look different, often unique to gender. In fact, I I talk about how I think a lot of boys don't present with a classic worry. Hmm. They don't necessarily report or look fearful. Sometimes they look more angry than anxious a lot of times, and it's easy to miss as a result of that. In fact, a lot of boys in a classroom setting look more ADHD-ish than anything because when anxiety hijacks the brain, you know, if I'm if I'm working with a lot of worry in my head, I can be fidgety, restless, mm-hmm. under focused, distracted yeah. easily. Yeah. So I think that's worth noting where we talk a lot about how more girls tend to bend poor bend toward becoming more perfectionistic and pleasing. I have a few boys who bend in that direction, not as many. They don't tend to bend as much toward performing, but I think that's an important thing to note on the front side. I don't know if you'd say anything else to that. Well, I think the biggest thing I would add, and we talked about that this this morning, is that David and I would both say every child we've ever seen who's anxious is really bright. They're really hmm. conscientious. They're trying yeah, hard. They care deeply. I mean, they're the coolest kinds of kids. And the proverbial anxious apple doesn't fall far from the tree (laughs) and statistically if as a parent you have anxiety your kids are seven times more likely to have it themselves and we have seen such an increase not just in anxiety among kids but anxiety among parents and I have just finished a book called my last book was called Raising Worry-Free Girls I've just written one called The Worry-Free Parent (sighs) Finding the Confidence You Need So Your Kids Can Too (laughs) well I just it came out of feeling like we sit day in and day out with the most well-intentioned, kind-hearted, yeah. trying hard parents who are making things worse for their kids. Yeah. And they don't know and they don't mean to. And it breaks their heart when they get to the reality that that's what's happening. But it's sometimes what's happening. Yeah. Because everything that tells you what it means to be a good parent would tell you that you need to help your kids avoid pain and discomfort and hurt and anguish and all of those things. And so in that, the two most common parenting strategies when kids are faced with anxiety are escape and avoidance. So we step in and we pull them out of the situation and end up over-attending and over-parenting, fixing it for them. And, and when we step in and do those things, we communicate to them that they can't do it themselves. And so then they're more anxious, they feel less capable, and it just feeds this monster of worry and anxiety. And so, you know, I think to think about how do we 
trust our kids, trust ourselves, trust God in those places. We talked this morning about how courage isn't the antidote to anxiety, but trust is. And to trust the process in all of these things and trust even what we know to be so true of suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character hope. That suffering is the beginning of that and that we've got to let the kids that we love figure it out and that they will. And sometimes it's our best efforts that make the worst outcome for them. So if we want them to have the skills and the tools on their own, there is no skipping the suffering stage. Right, right. Yeah. We have a, a counselor in our community who spoke um, in our, in our, to our parents several times. Her name's Sandy Toma. She's amazing. Mm-hmm. But she, she used the phrase, more is caught than taught. Yes. Right, which I think for my wife and I is really helpful and also terrifying. But like, so I'm really interested in your book because um, it, it's – it sounds like what you're saying. Like it almost mm-hmm. seems like the hypothesis there is if I want my child to be less anxious, I also have to be really conscious about myself and what I'm, what I'm modeling and what yes. I'm demonstrating. Yes. So are there specific things like, here's actually a question, maybe specific times of day. So I think about bedtime. Mm-hmm. Bedtime seems to be where a lot of things suddenly bubble up. Absolutely. Right. Which there's one layer of that, which is like, is this real or is this a stall tactic? <laughs> right. That we all have to kind of sift through. But let's mm-hmm. say we get through that layer and it's real. Mm-hmm. What are some ways to make bedtime not so anxious? No, you throw out one and I'll throw out one too. I will. And I was going to say first, you know, to your great observation, I think it's often both and. Okay. Like I think it's real because it's hard to do and it creates opportunity for stall tactics because it's hard to do okay i think the work of sleep is just that it's work it's a lot of regulation work and and i challenge any parent listening think on if you've ever had a really stressful day or have a stressful day coming up what it feels like to lay down at night and quiet your brain and body like it's a lot of work and we have all the skills and resources of adults but a great one you can teach to kids you can do with them is something called PMR or progressive muscle relaxation with kids. Sometimes we'll just call it tense and relax. And it's where you could lay down beside your child and and say, okay, we're going to start at the top of the body and work our way down. And I'm going to call it a body part and we're going to tense that part of the body. And then we're going to relax, see how that feels. So we could start with our eyes and our forehead and I'm going to squint my eyes and tighten my forehead and then relax. And I'm going to move down to my jaw and I'm going to grip my teeth and tighten my jaw and then just relax and then move all the way down, calling out those parts, then go from the bottom up and let kids call out those parts. Mm -hmm. And then practicing that with kids who are stalling and struggling and saying, you know what, now that we've worked on tense and relax, I want you to do two rounds of that on your own. And then I'll come back in and check in and see if you still need any help or if you're still awake, knowing that that strategy is something kids could take with them when they go to a spend the night, when they go to summer camp, their grandparents' house, so it's one that travels well over the course of their life. What would you say is another one? All of a sudden, I found myself squinting as you were saying that. <laughs> were Did you, you do that too? I found myself getting sleepy. <laughs> good, it's yes. working. Yeah. Yes. Can you record that for me? I can, yeah. <laughs> that would that's be good. nice, David's voice saying it out loud. <laughs> my favorite that I use all the time in my office is called the three doors game. And so I will say to a child or adolescent, tell me three places that you love and know really well and feel safe. And so often they'll pick a grandparent's house or sometimes they'll pick school, which that's a huge compliment. I'm sure every student here would pick school or they'll pick a vacation place that they've been. It can't be a place they've been one time that they don't really know. They have to be familiar with it. And so what 
they would do is envision each of those places behind a door. And so they walk in the first door, and one of the things that's really important in work with anxiety is what's called a grounding technique. So anxiety really exists in the past or the future, not in the present. And we Mm -hmm. want to do things that ground us to the present so our brain's not spinning off. And so anything sensory-related is grounding. So sights, thinking about sights, sounds, smells, tactile, any sensory approach. And so... We would have them walk in the front door. Sometimes I use Disney World or Disneyland because it's pretty universal. So, you know, if we're thinking about Disneyland, and David and I went there Monday, so we can do this well. You go through the turnstile, and then, you know, you go through that tunnel at Disneyland. There are all those posters. I think there are bathrooms in there. And so to say to kids, tell me what you see. Tell me what you hear. What do you smell? You know, I can start to smell popcorn, whatever it is. And then they come out onto Main Street and do the same thing and have them walk through the whole Disneyland would take a million years, but walk through your whole grandparents' That's why house. my kid would pick it. Right. Because <laughs> it would take a million years. Yeah. Well, that And that's great once you are not there anymore. Because yeah. <laughs> in the beginning, True. they are going to talk you through yeah. it, and then eventually you stop, right. and they can do it did on Did you guys own. go on the new Star Wars ride? We did. It's yes, pretty epic, did. right? It was so cool. Oh, my gosh. All right. You come out and all the storm Oh, man. Yeah, I know. Yes. It's like, this is real. All right. Yes. Sorry. So Sidebar. anyway, walk through the whole first door, sensory related, come out, go in the second door. Same thing. What do they see? What do they hear? What do they smell with every turn? And most kids will tell me they never make it to the third door. Interesting. Because they feel safe because yeah. they're being grounded into the present. They forget about the things that are spinning and causing them to stay awake. Yeah, that's good. Okay. What about in the morning? So I'm thinking about kids here who have trouble like pulling up to school and it's, oh man, the school day is coming. I'm not sure I want to get out of the car. I'm really nervous about today or, you know, just leaving the house or that kind of stuff. So some grounding games that we could do during the day, again, building on what Sissy just reminded us, the five senses, there's a grounding game we call five, four, three, two, one. And we could start with what are five things that you see? What are four things that you hear? Kids could do that in the car as we're driving from our driveway to the front door of school where they may be feeling a lot of anxiety. That's, again, another one that they could take anywhere Mm -hmm. with them. And one that they can eventually do when they become really practiced in that space in a classroom setting before a time test when no one is even aware that they're doing it just on their own. You know what? I'm going to look around the room and pick five things that I see. What are four things that I hear in their heads? Another is a grounding game we call the color game and where they just pick any color and then identify everything they see in the space of that particular color. And you could rotate through every color, multiple colors. And another that we call the counting game. And this could be harder or easier depending on how great kids are at math. So If it's an adolescent, you might say, okay, we're going to start at 100 and count backwards by 7. 100, 93, 86. I can never get farther than that. That's really hard math. (laughs) And so make it difficult. With younger kids, we might start at 20 and count backwards by 5. And and the thinking behind that being that if I am in the present, as Sissy just described, giving all of my attention to that work, that good, healthy, cognitive work, I can't devote my attention fully to the anxiety. Hmm. So those grounding games help us turn our attention in great directions rather than just kind of feeding and fueling those looping thoughts and worries. Yeah. So as I listen to you talk, there's a, there's a question in my mind. I don't know if I'm going to ask it in the best way, but 
there is, I struggle with two tensions around whatever the issue is that is causing the anxiety. So, so let's say there's an issue, we do something and my, my child feels better, right? They've, is it better? Half of me wants to never revisit the issue again because I want to avoid the thing that causes the anxiety. The other half of me wants to revisit it later and say, hey, you were worried about X and it, it totally worked out differently. And it, it feels like it's really important to you know acknowledge the, the amount of things that we worry about that end up not coming mm-hmm. true. And, but that sometimes comes across to the kid maybe as I told you so. Right. So I, what should I do with either of those? Are, is there merit to either of those? Is there mm-hmm. a different way? Um, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I, two quick things I would say, and then you jump in. I mean, one is kids, in the research I did to write some books about anxiety, one of the things I came across that I thought was fascinating is that anxiety has no memory. And so the things they've done before that worked, they don't remember when they get anxious hmm. again, or when they've done really hard things they don't remember. So I think it could be really healthy and helpful to revisit it. And maybe rather than saying, it seems like it worked out because I'm right. with you. I think they could yeah. then say, but it was harder than you. You right. know, they feel like you're maybe demeaning what they Like they shouldn't have felt anxious. Right, right. right. Yeah. But instead to say, tell me how you think that worked out. What helped you in the moment? And then that way you're reaffirming the tools so that maybe next time they can go back to those. Remember yeah. last time you told me this really helped. Yeah. And then they can go back there. And the other thing that I'll do a lot of times is come up with for girls – Something they've done that has been really hard for them. I mean, I'm, I have a girl that I work with who gets pretty anxious, and she went off a really high diving board. And so for the next six months, she would say, if I went off that high dive, I can do this. Hmm. And so to have some kind of benchmark like that, I think, for them can be really helpful. And so that can be a great reason to go back over what's happened in the past, too. If you did this, you can do anything. Yeah, yeah. Part of what we've been talking about, I feel like the entire time we've been here, is how practice makes progress. Most of us grew up being told that practice makes perfect, and we encourage parents to throw that out. It's not true. It's not helpful. And to replace that with practice makes progress. And back to Sissy's point about how it has no memory, the more we're practicing in these spaces, even in the calm moments, the more we have to bring to the equation in the anxious moments. And Mm -hmm. so I would say keep practicing in these spaces keep practicing in the non-problematic times so that kids are developing in all these places for the times they really do need these skills so to put a fine point on it i told a story in part one about my daughter this morning and the lunch line and the process being different so i could revisit that with her in a productive way this afternoon by saying, hey, how did it work out with lunch? You know, oh, that's great. I'm so glad you did get your lunch in the end and you worked through it. You mm-hmm. you learned that you can do the new process, right? Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I don't want to get too like, see, not all change is bad, but there is a little bit of that seed planting in healthily yes. revisiting it. Yes, and I think the same thing can be said with intensity or levity yeah right and sometimes when we bring more levity to it they do better going there with us and then in future moments when she comes up on change you could easily be like this is another lunch this this is today's lunch line exactly yeah right okay i was also thinking as you were telling that story earlier and sissy talked so well about this in raising worry-free girls that 
those kids in particular crave a lot of structure and sameness. It's why they create all these routines and rituals mm-hmm. at nighttime, believing those external things are going to keep them safe or calm the internal storm that's happening. And one of the things we talked about with parents that would be a good reminder is just practicing flexibility because those kids don't like change and don't like transitions yeah. typically is practice in small ways like tonight at dinner say you know what instead of sitting in the exact I'm same so glad seats, you brought this up yes yeah. let's rotate one seat to the left everybody or tonight we're going to have breakfast for dinner we're going to do eggs yeah. and bacon at dinner time or tonight at bedtime dad and i are going to swap and he's going to read the stories and i'm going to do this part of the bedtime ritual we're going to flip who's taking you to school tomorrow looking for these opportunities for kids to practice flexibility when they simply want everything to be the same all the time, which the more we feed and feel that, it's just setting up change being harder and harder. I mean, if my younger daughter sits in the chair of my older daughter right now, it is World War III. (laughs) So that's one for us to practice a little bit. I haven't told you this story. We, on our staff, we had a dinner for a bunch of the girls on staff recently, and we have a new staff member who has two sons, and she was talking about just... In passing, she was saying that she had had this couple and their two children live with them for about three months recently. And I said, I can't even imagine what that would be like. I mean, how disruptive that would be to your family and giving up space. And the boys had to share a room. And she stopped and she said, and her boys, the youngest one goes off to college this year, right? And she said, we have been committed all during our boys growing up years to them being disrupted. Mm. Wow. And we felt like it was so good for them to go yeah. for a period of time and have to share a bedroom. It's just, it grows good things in them. Awesome. I know. I know. I wanted to jump up and down and give yeah. her a high five. I loved it. It's so got much. me thinking about like the car. I mean, they had, you know, same seats their entire yes. lives. Yes. Right. That's, uh, that's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Okay. I got a lot of notes here. <laughs> so this is good. I'm sneaking in a lot of personal stuff. Hopefully people are still listening, but. <laughs> So I have two I have two girls as a parent, but this also gets me thinking. And you you both do such a good job of you know, hey, girls and boys aren't always the same, right? Is flexibility different for girls and boys? Is that one where there are some gender specific tendencies? I would say I definitely see a lot of the bedtime ritual routines and needing to be exactly the same with boys at night. I hear a lot of reporting. Say this that way and then this that way, or I can't go to bed if you don't do it exactly this way. Yeah. The other place where I see it with boys, and I'd be curious if there are any other places in particular you see it with girls, is around sports. Mm -hmm. Like boys who have to drink the same thing, right? The exact protein drink right before, and I have to stretch in this certain way, and I have to step outside the dugout and turn my bat in this way. Like all those different... But the difference is that's true in that case. Like those <laughs> those superstitions absolutely. I mean, I will swear by, you know, the left sock that I wore every baseball game. Wow. Bit, right that right? I don't see that in talk girls about so what much. was really going on. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we do. We maybe have a tradition here in amongst the football coaches that in the playoffs we don't shave our beards. Are you telling me that that's not a good thing? Not accurate? But so, but not so much in girls. I don't see that as much in girls. I don't hear them talk about that. Wouldn't you say, I've heard you talk before about where you hear a lot of that with girls would be like, I have to get my bun exactly right in my hair before ballet, or I have to like a lot of rigidity around appearance or hair or things in those spaces where some of that might show up. I have a bump in my ponytail. Yes. Yes. But I don't think it's as tied to 
superstition as it is perfectionism and things okay. have to be exactly right. Yeah. Yes. So it's yeah. not that they, but they wouldn't perform well. It's that it's an error. Yes. Right. Exactly. Whereas, I don't look perfect. Right. Right. Someone might see notice. Whereas mm-hmm. for the boy, it's, you know, how can I hit this fastball? Yes. Length <laughs> if I haven't. Absolutely. You know, a lot to appearance, yeah. more performance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that I know for me has been an antidote to anxiety or, or that I've learned is an antidote, antidote to anxiety is gratitude. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's something actually I've brought in a little bit with our freshman class. We do a, a in health, a little one month pullout and I actually make them write thank you letters to somebody on campus mm-hmm. just to get in the, in the, in the habit That's of gratitude, great. which is really funny because you know, they all love it. And then they're like, well, wait a sec, how do I do that? But um, maybe you can speak a little bit to gratitude, you know, as a as an antidote, and how as parents we can cultivate that in our kids. We can't say enough, probably, about the power of gratitude and how important it is. And we have kids do a lot of practices around it. I love that you do that, and we have kids keep gratitude journals often. You do something specifically with technology that I love. Mm-hmm. Can I say what you? I do? have kids who are really young who don't yet have a device do this on their parents' iPad or iPhone, and teenagers who have their own can do it on theirs, but create a gratitude album and iPhoto mm-hmm. where you will dump photos of people, places, and experiences that call your mind back to things you're grateful for. So I'll have kids put, you know, photos of their best friend, photos of Young Life Camp, photos of their pets, family members, all in a photo album that in those moments when they can feel their mind kind of spinning off, will just slide through those photos mm-hmm. as a way to reset the brain. I have Younger kids who have a lot of kids who have a lot of fear about getting a finger prick at the doctor. And I had a little boy who said that he had a lot of fear around that. And so I had him create a gratitude album on his mom's iPad. And when he went, he had told me, he said, I keep staring and it hurts so bad. And I'm like, okay, what if you were to look away from the finger prick and toward the photos and slide that way with your other hand and... He came back and reported, it still hurt a little, but not as bad. Okay. Oh, <laughs> that's because, great. again, yeah. we can't give all of our attention to yes. anxiety yeah. and all of our attention to gratitude yeah. simultaneously. And statistically, it's a thing, too. I mean, scientifically, the way that our brains function, we cannot be anxious and grateful at the same time. Which, I mean, even thinking about the Psalms, how much of Scripture yeah, is right. steeped in that. Yeah. Yes, and right? there is courts with Thanksgiving. It, yeah, that, that's where it's we start. Almost the, it's almost the yeah. model that David operates on, yes. right? I, I'm worried about X, Y, Z, but I know you are good, and I'm grateful for ABC. Yes, you know? exactly. Um, that's I, that kind of blew my mind. I've not, I haven't thought about that before, mm. but um, but that's good. Mm. Yeah, I'm. I want to go back. You you mentioned earlier um, parents who have anxiety are seven times more likely to have kids with anxiety, which being one of them gives me anxiety. <laughs> so, uh, other tips for parents like me, you know, what are some things we can do to reduce our anxiety so that our kids are only three times more likely to get it, <laughs> which may be a lost cause, but uh, anything you can share on that? I really do think one of the greatest gifts we can give anxious kids is attending to our own anxiety. And the research keeps saying that over and over again. And I have had such a great reminder of that in my dog. I mentioned my dog as we were talking together because we use dogs in our practice and love that part of things. And when I took this uh, yellow lab Owen through the therapy dog process, it's really labor intensive. So you go to school for a long time, you develop all these skills, you graduate. And then when it's time for you to do your first site visit, you are understandably thinking, is this dog who I've invested all this in going to perform in the way he should? And 
I will never forget our instructor saying, you know, when you go for that first site visit, pay close attention to, and we were all like taking notes, what's he going to say, what's the most important skill we've learned? And he said, to your own anxiety. Hmm. Because anxiety travels down the leash. Wow. So the dog will feel it. Yes. And it just stopped me in my tracks. And I thought, oh, my goodness. If our dogs can pick up on that, how much more can kids? You know, this awareness that, you know, this anxiety that spills over. We talk a lot about that, that to the degree that I'm attending to that, I'm paying attention to that, I'm practicing all these skills and talking about it. I talk a lot about that in my new book about the importance of narrating our experience in front of kids that when we're stuck in traffic and stress to say, you know what, I feel really stressed. I feel tight in my body right now. Hmm. And at the next stoplight, I'm going to turn on some worship music and just let that kind of wash over me and see if that starts to change how I feel in my body. Or at the next red light, I'm going to do a minute of deep breathing. And I know that's going to lower my heart rate. Like saying these things out loud, knowing that kids are getting the opportunity to see that this is human work. This is not just kid work. This is what we want to be doing as grown-ups in front of our kids because we talked today about how kids learn more from observation than information. As we're thinking about gratitude, we talked this morning about the verse that talks about when God says, see, I'm doing a new thing. Hmm. Now it springs up. And, and I think the first time I read that verse, thinking about anxiety, I thought I so often live in him saying, see, I'm going to do a new thing, not I'm already doing a new thing. And that that's in the present moment. And that we go back to hmm. not only is the present moment, which keeps us from being anxious, the present moment keeps us from being anxious, but the present moment is also where we have gratitude. It's in the here and now that we have gratitude. And so we asked the question to parents this morning and would we asked a question to parents last night and would encourage you all to think about where are three places you see God's goodness now in the life of your child and where are three places you see God's goodness in the life of yourself as a parent? Because David and I would say collectively, collectively we feel like parents in the last year have never been as hard on themselves. And never been trying as hard. And both go together. And instead, looking at the fact that you're doing a great job and you're winning in a whole lot of places. And where can you be grateful that you're seeing God's movement in your own life as a parent and as a person? Can I call you in two days and just have (laughs) you repeat that back to me when I need it? But I'm so encouraged by your words. So, um, yeah, that's great. I think, you know, even just thinking about... trying to think about how do I help my kid to have more gratitude Mm. and part of it is by having more gratitude yes so yes that's helpful so so one other thing that is is related to anxiety I think I didn't I didn't actually understand how connected it was until the last four years in this particular role is technology Mm. and I know there's a lot out there on technology but I think I'm struck by the connectedness of our young people and it's so different from what I was growing up. And the way that I would describe it was if I got in a fight with a friend, I would go home, think about it, play the conversation out in my head multiple times, think about how I wanted to address it tomorrow. Today, that space doesn't exist because the conflict continues through the night. Yes. The conversation continues. My friends will all text me and ask me about it. Someone will post about it. 
So I feel like technology is driving anxiety mm. quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And I think parents in particular are struggling with what should my approach to technology be? Do I get rid of it all? Do I embrace it all? Is it a lost cause? So maybe you could share a little bit about um, some tips that you have as far as how we view technology and some practical things we can do to help our kids navigate what's out there. You know, one thing I would say before you share a couple of tips that confirms everything you're saying, I don't know how many parents listening had an opportunity to see the documentary A Social Dilemma, which we would highly recommend. I think it's such an important documentary for any parent to see. And, and older kids yes, to watch with them. absolutely, for adolescents to watch as well. And if you will think back on it if you have seen it, the moment kind of midway through where they put up a graph of the rise in anxiety and depression with the pediatric population. Mm-hmm. And then they put up another graph that is the invention of the smartphone and when it really took off. And then they put those two on top of each other and they're almost identical. Yeah, and it's such wild. a sobering yeah. moment when we're all reminded there's hard data, there's some speculation around that. And it's not the only ingredient and in why those numbers have climbed, but it is an ingredient that means we have to pay attention to the role of technology and what's happening with anxiety and depression in the pediatric population, which is a good lead in into some important tips. Well, I love your question in light of that, because I think parents can hear what you're saying, David, and say, okay, we're just not doing it. I mean, every time we teach a parenting class where we talk about technology, some parent will come up and say, I heard what you're saying. I'm just not going to let my kids do it, which I understand the heart behind it, certainly. And technology is here to stay. Yeah. I mean, it is going to be a force in the lives yeah. of the kids we love forever. And I, I get asked by parents, well, my kid says they're going to be excluded if they don't have X, Y, Z, right? Is that true? And I feel like sometimes the answer is yes. Yes, exactly. I mean, they will miss out on things. And yes. so you have to weigh what's the value of that versus the value of, you know, protecting them from social media. Right. Right. And what can you decide is a battle worth fighting and a battle worth letting go. But I think ultimately our job in all things is to teach kids responsibility while they live with us. And so they're going to start to learn to drive a car at 15 and they're going to get a driver's license at 16. And we're not going to send them out in, in the world, you know, without having had all those hours of teaching them to drive. And at the same time, we're not going to say, and sometimes I have parents who say to me, my child's not emotionally mature enough to drive yet at 16. Mm. Well, then that child two years later graduates and they live on their own. Yeah. They need to learn how to do things gradually. I, I hate speaking on technology and I have to do it <laughs> a good bit. And I was at this church. I told the story when we were speaking yesterday, but I, I was at this church and I did an hour long technical Sorry, I did an hour-long tech. I cannot say that. I did an hour-long talk on technology, and I try when I'm talking about it to be as warm as I can possibly be, and gracious, and smile at everyone a lot because they just look so panicked the whole yeah. talk. And this man in the back did not look panicked; he looked furious at me. And so, at the end of the time, we had a question and answer time, and he raised his hand. He wanted the microphone, and they took it to him. And he didn't have a question, but he had an answer for everyone, <laughs> including me. And he stood up and he said, I have, I have five children and my oldest child just graduated from high school. And let me tell you that technology is not a child's God-given right. And he said, when we were driving to his high school graduation was the first time I let him get on the internet on his phone and I let him send a photo from his phone. 
And then he went on to say, if your child is on the internet, go home and shut it down. And he thought we didn't hear him or something. So he said it again, <laughs> even louder. I didn't even know what to do. I just said, let me pray for us. And I sent yeah. him out. But I immediately thought, that poor kid yeah. in May, sitting in his bedroom, had no freedom in terms of technology. Can you imagine August in his freshman dorm, what he was looking at on his access phone? Access to everything. Yes, access yeah. to everything. Kids, I mean, I really think probably every child along the way is going to mess up when it comes to technology yeah. in one way or another. We want them to mess up when they're living under our roofs. We can help them work through it. We can help pick up the pieces, help them see it as a learning opportunity rather than throwing them in the deep end. And so we usually say to parents, you don't want your kids to be the first to be on all things technology related. You don't want to be the last because they're going to be the ones that sneak their way to it or lie about it or something like that. Or we're going to hold them back in some ways but you can be the next to last <laughs> and you yeah. pick, you know, make sure you know where the kids are in your child's class. And when it feels like, okay, really everybody has a phone now, but my child, I think it's time. Everyone's on social media now. Maybe it's time. Now the one caveat I would have that I think we want to hold off to the last right now. And this is in the last six months, I would say is TikTok. Mm-hmm. And you're not probably having as many conversations about this as I am, but I think among girls, TikTok has become the primary means of learning about yeah. mental health. Yeah. It's where they're all going to learn about depression, anxiety, mm-hmm. all kinds of things like that. I had a 14-year-old girl who I met with not long ago who said she'd created an account to help people understand better about mental health issues. And I thought, what do you know? Why are you the authority <laughs> out there on TikTok about mental health? But that's what's happening. And to the degree that I somehow caught wind of this thankfully because we have seen a real uprising in kids who have tick disorder so those repetitive movements that are physical or they're making some kind of sound repetitively and so I started doing a deep dive in terms of research and there are now influencers on TikTok who supposedly have I don't know if they have or don't have tick disorders and so they're actually showing these ticks on TikTok, and ticks are a psychogenic illness, which means if I watch someone with tick disorder, I'm going to start having the same ticks. Mm. And so they did this study where they were seeing certain ticks develop in kids in certain parts of the country that oh. were, they could show that they were watching more of the influencers with tick disorder. Not wild? Wild. Yes. And I heard this summer about some accounts on TikTok that have been created to teach kids how to take their own lives. Oh, my gosh. So, I mean, I I think that is the one, which kids love it. I mean, there are so many kids I see who are on TikTok, but I think we want to hold off as long as we can. And when we feel like we have to finally bite the bullet, if we do, we want to have a lot of conversations about what they're going to see. And my favorite thing I ever heard a parent do, she – not that's not true. One of my favorite (laughs) things I ever heard a parent do, she gave her daughter Instagram for the first time, not TikTok – But she said, so I created her account, and before I gave it to her, I got on and I watched every puppy video I could find. (laughs) So that the algorithm was showing her puppies. Yes, isn't that awesome? awesome. I love it. You could do the same with TikTok. Are there there specific tools that you'd recommend? So in this philosophy of, you know, okay, we're not going to necessarily say they never get it. It's going to... We're also not going to just give them unfiltered access to everything when we do give it to them, right? Are there specific tools that you'd recommend parents have and use to 
monitor, to set controls, what would you recommend? We are huge advocates of creating a docking station in your room. Okay. Not in the kitchen, which would be easy for, and we've heard lots of reports, kids sneaking down yeah, to the kitchen at right. night. <laughs> and we have a lot of kids who try to argue that they use their phone as their alarm clock. So buy them an alarm clock, right? old school alarm clocks yeah. to be purchased at Target or on Amazon. We assure you of that. Or tell your favorite reporting about how they need their phone. Oh, or I had a girl who told me that she used her phone to read her Bible. <laughs> and Therefore, she's got to have it. In right, her room. exactly, by her yeah. bed. They're leather-bound Bibles to be purchased still <laughs> out there. Even great paperback ones nowadays. Yeah. But there's just so much research around the blue light phenomena that happens with kids when they're not getting enough sleep and spending mm-hmm. time awake at night on a device. So, And that has always been true and always will be true. The amount of <laughs> sleep that infants, elementary-age kids, and adolescents need is the exact same number it's always yep. been and That's always will be. Yes. And We just have technology standing in the way of that. What else would you say? Well, and I think we want to have time limits. We want to take breaks. And rather than that argument of give me your phone, it's time to take some time off from whatever technological gadget they're using, we are huge fans of Bark. They are fabulous in terms of screening what's going on on kids' devices, creating time limits, all of that. Teen Safe is another great resource as well. I mean, anything like that that can – be the bad guy for you rather than you having to be the bad guy yourself. So just for parents who might not know Bark, you can set a limit on it and then the phone will just either shut off or prevent access to certain things. Exactly. We had the directors of Bark on our podcast and they were wonderful. We would, I wish I knew what episode it was, but we would highly recommend going to listen to that because even statistically the things as a company they do a lot of research too on technology and kids and the things that they're learning it was fascinating and made it feel that much more important that we need to be monitoring and aware of what's going on with kids. if someone wanted to find your podcast what would they look for it's called raising boys and girls okay if you were to go to our website, raisingboysandgirls.com, it will take you straight to the podcast, all our resources, where we're teaching. So okay. everything's the housed there. Awesome. And I assume you're going to be featuring this podcast prominently. Absolutely. On your no yes. question. Just making sure. Hey, thank you guys so much for spending so much time with us over the past few days and second year in a row. I think I think we're already uh, drafting the agreement for year three if you're up Good. for it. Good, yes. So, so um, you've added just a ton to our community. And uh, I've talked to a lot of excited people here the last couple of days. So we really appreciate you being with us and, and of course, doing this. So thank you so thank much. You. We're so grateful for y'all. And thank you to those of you who are listening, watching. If this is your first time, we have lots of episodes of our Eagle Perspective podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, elsewhere where podcasts are available. Our video podcasts are on YouTube. We look forward to seeing you again soon.